National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. At the beginning of November, I promised we'd do a series of show covering the Central Asian Republics. We started the series with our guests Esfandiar Batman-Gelage and Timur Umarov as we covered Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. We're continuing our discussions today with a special focus on Kazakhstan, but I'm certain the other Central Asian republics will definitely figure into our dialogue. With us to, to explore Central Asia is Professor Jeff Mankoff. Jeffrey Mankoff is a Distinguished Research Fellow at the U.S. National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. Mankoff is also a non-resident senior associate with the Center for Strategic and International Studies Russia and Eurasia program. His areas of expertise include international security, Russian foreign policy, regional security in the Caucasus and Central Asia, ethnic conflict, and energy security. Before coming to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, he served as an advisor on U.S.-Russia relations at the U.S. Department of State as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. From 2008 to 2010, he was Associate Director of International Security Studies at Yale University and an Adjunct Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the author of Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics. He also published Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security, which examines the impact of the imperial past on Chinese, Iranian, Russian, and Turkish politics and foreign policy. Dr. Mankoff has also taught courses on international security, Russia, and Central Asia at Columbia, George Washington, Georgetown, and Yale universities, and held academic fellowships at Harvard, Moscow State, and Yale. He holds dual Bachelor of Arts degrees in International Studies and Russian from the University of Oklahoma, and a Master of Arts and a Master of Philosophy and a Doctorate in Diplomatic History from Yale University. Professor Jeff Mankoff, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you. And where are you seated this morning while we're on Zoom with each other? <laughs> um, I'm in my office <clears throat> at uh, the campus of National Defense University in Washington. All right. Anything happening at, uh, at NDU today that's uh, of interest, or is it just a typical academic day? It's a typical academic day. Uh, Wednesday's the day when students have their electives, so there'll be a lot of uh, people running around going to courses today. All right. Uh, so, Professor Mankoff, you're currently at the National Defense University as a st- Distinguished Research Fellow. We should, we should highlight the fact that uh, what we're going to talk about today, these are your views. You're not, you're not uh, representing the official position of the U.S. government, uh, the Department of Defense, or the National Defense University. Uh, could you tell us a, a little bit more about NDU, just so our listeners understand mm-hmm. what, it, what that institution is, uh, which colleges are embedded inside NDU, and, and how that school serves mm-hmm. America's long-term national security interests? Sure. So um, NDU is part of the Department of Defense. Uh, it's what's called a Joint Professional Military Education, or JPME, uh, institution. Um, in that sense, it's similar to the service war colleges, uh, the Army War College, Navy War College, uh, Air War College. Um, NDU has a focus on jointness. Uh, so we have students who are drawn uh, from all the branches of the U.S. military, uh, DOD civilians and civilians from other um, components of the U.S. government. Um, the 
service members are uh, mostly at the 06 level, so um, lieutenant colonels, uh, commanders, um, and uh, they have to go through what's called uh, JPME 2 or advanced uh, JPME uh, curriculum to be considered for promotion to um, higher ranks. Um, NDU is uh, physically located um, at Fort Leslie McNair uh, in Washington, D.C., and there's a South Campus uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, we're made up of uh, five colleges. Uh, there's the National War College, uh, the College of Information and Cybersecurity, uh, College of International Security Affairs, which focuses on irregular warfare, um, the uh, Dwight Eisenhower School, uh, which is kind of NDU's business school, focuses on the economy and mobilization. And then down in Norfolk, we have uh, the Joint Forces Staff College. And, and we should highlight JPME stands for Joint Professional Military Education. Uh, all the, That's passed into uh, statute a long time ago that all officers in the military have to go through JPME Phase 1 and Phase 2 to be eligible for, for promotion to flag or general officer rank. So it's a, it's a critical part of the training process for all military officers to go through that. Uh, Professor Menkoff, your, your academic specialization has been predominantly on Russia, and by extension, uh, due to the days of the Soviet Union, the role of the Central Asian Republics. Uh, I mentioned in my opening we'd be concentrating on, on Kazakhstan today, but likely touching on the other Central Asian republics as well. But I want to start with this question. Uh, what drew you to study Central Asia as part of your academic pursuits? It's, a, it's an area that really that not too many people understand. You don't hear that much about it in the news. Uh, you, you know about it, obviously, if you're from the region, like uh, one of my previous guests, uh, uh, Tima Rumorov, was from Uzbekistan. He's a Tajik living you know, from, originally from Uzbekistan. So for an outsider to decide to focus academically on studying Central Asia, there was likely some sort of a, a catalyst for that. So what was that catalyst for you? Well, like a lot of people from, from my generation, I think, it um, started by focusing on um, Russia uh, around the time of the, the Soviet collapse. But the more uh, you look at, at Russia and Russian foreign policy, um, the more I came to recognize that it was connected uh, in really important ways to the legacy of the Soviet Union. And the collapse of the Soviet Union was still uh, critical for making sense of how Russia positioned itself as an international actor. And so I wanted to focus a little bit more um, on the other parts of the former Soviet Union um, to understand uh, what their connection, their ongoing connections with Russia were and how they were seeking to um, establish themselves internationally as independent players uh, in the wake of the Soviet collapse. Uh, and so I was primarily interested in Central Asia uh, just because uh, it had the, I, I guess in some ways, the most complex um, history um, in terms of its role uh, at the center of the sort of uh, Turco-Mongol world in the in the Middle Ages and, and into the early modern period, and then having that uh, region come under the control of the expanding terrestrial empires surrounding it, of which Russia was the the largest and the most successful, um, and then looking at how um, the indigenous cultures and identities and um, ideas survived the experience of both Russian colonialism and then. Um, the Soviet experience. So it, it's always been, um, to me, a, a really fascinating region and one that I think um, 
is more important in terms of the sort of global strategic balance than it's often understood to be uh, in the United States because for the U.S. Uh, as a country and, and as far as U.S. national interests are concerned, Central Asia sometimes gets short shrift just because of where it's located. It's far away. Um, the countries there are relatively small. We don't have uh, robust trading relationships with them. Um, and uh, they're in a tough neighborhood with Russia, China, uh, Iran, uh, and other big countries uh, surrounding them and, and seeking to influence their politics. Yeah, and, and so we're going to concentrate on, on Kazakhstan today. If you feel like, you know, to, to further, you know, to better explain things that are happening uh, in Kazakhstan by branching out into talking about some of the other uh, Central Asian republics or Russia or China or whatever you want to do, uh, let's let's absolutely do that. So let's start with Kazakhstan. Could you tell us a little bit about Kazakhstan? What what should people understand uh, about that that huge landlocked nation uh, in Central Asia? Yeah, yes. So Kazakhstan's an enormous country. Um, it's about the size of Western Europe, um, but it's relatively sparsely populated. Um, population's only around twenty million or so people. Um, much of the country is desert or steppe, um, and it has a very, very long, um, basically unguardable border with Russia. Um, the population uh, at the time of, of independence, uh, Kazakhs comprised less than 50% of the population. Mm. That's changed uh, in the 30-plus years since Kazakhstan became independent. Um, but there's still a significant uh, ethnic Russian population, uh, especially in the north, along that border. Um, and then in some of the, the cities, uh, particularly Almaty uh, in the south. So the ethnic composition uh, of the population creates uh, vulnerabilities. And it's something that Kazakh governments over the course of the last 30 plus years have had to be very, very um, attuned to. You know, the kind of rhetoric that uh, Russian leaders have used around Ukraine uh, about how Ukraine is an, an artificial state and it belongs to this so-called Russian world. Um, you hear similar rhetoric uh, sometimes used around Kazakhstan and the presence of that ethnic Russian population, uh, especially in the north along the border, um, is a, uh, a big vulnerability. And so Kazakh governments really from the moment of independence, have had uh, a very delicate task of trying to uh, manage their relationship with Russia in a way that didn't invite uh, intervention, but at the same time allowed Kazakhstan to position itself as an independent actor uh, on the global stage and pursue its national interests, which didn't always coincide with those uh, of Russia. Um, I remember once when I was in Kazakhstan doing research, you know, one of the uh, themes that, that officials I was talking to emphasized was that we want to be Russia's closest partner um, because that way they'll trust us and we'll have more freedom of action uh, in other regions and on other issues. We don't want to give Russia any um, sort of uh, justification for thinking that we're um, acting against their interests or that we're uh, going to be a problem because Russia can cause a lot of problems for us. Um, the war in Ukraine has, has um, scrambled that calculation a little bit. Um, I think Kazakhstan, like the other Central Asian countries, um, recognizes that Russia's um, influence uh, is diminishing, uh, but also that Russia is a uh, 
is more dangerous right now. It has more um, willingness to, to use force, to lash out, um, that we're in a potentially more volatile um, period. And so uh, it's a, it's a, uh, a particularly tough moment, uh, but one that the, the government of Kazakhstan is trying to navigate the best it can. Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. It feels like uh, uh, Russia, the Russian political leadership, especially Vladimir Putin, uh, as they're feeling the pressure of this of this moment in history. Uh, so, some of it, most of it, self-created. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Jeff Mankoff from the National Defense University, and we're discussing Central Asia. Uh, so on our previous show on Central Asia, I asked uh, Tamar Umarov and Esfandiar batman Gelage about the political, economic, and security concerns of the, the other four nations in Central uh, Asia. I'd like to ask you to, to take us on a bit of a deep dive more deeply into these three areas uh, with regard to Kazakhstan and, and maybe start with the political situation inside Kazakhstan and, and the internal mm-hmm. dynamics of Kazakh politics. Uh, what can you tell us about mm-hmm. how Kazakhstan's political system functions? Yeah, so Kazakhstan is um, an authoritarian state. Um, it's a relatively soft authoritarian state compared to uh, some of its neighbors in Central Asia. Like Turkmenistan. Um, but it's, <laughs> you know, well, but it, yeah, it, it, it's still an authoritarian state. Um, the, the current president um, has been in power now for a few years. Um, in early 2022, so just a month or so before uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was large-scale uh, unrest, particularly uh, in Almaty, um, the, the commercial capital and, and the former political capital, um, that led to uh, a number of deaths. And uh, President Tokayev uh, actually called for um, the assistance of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a mutual security body uh, that Russia heads. Um, and that includes uh, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, And uh, for the first time in its history, the CSTO deployed forces uh, to help put down uh, the the unrest in Almaty. Um, That uh, intervention, uh, which was authorized, of course, by Russia, suggested that uh, President Tokayev was uh, very much in Russia's debt, and was going to be um, uh, deferential uh, to Russian political, economic, and security interests going forward. A month later, um, the war in Ukraine started, and um, Tokayev and, and the Kazakh government more generally have uh, charted a much more independent course than I think uh, a lot of observers expected back in, in January 2022. Um, they have attempted to consolidate uh, power internally. It seems a lot of the unrest in 2022 was connected with supporters um, of the of the former president, uh, Nursultan Nazarbayev, who remained kind of a, a gray cardinal behind the scene after after stepping down. Um, since then, Takayev has attempted to um, bring in his own people to kind of shunt uh, Nazarbayev and, and his supporters uh, to the back. Um, and to, uh, you know, sort of use the concerns about stability and about uh, the impact of the war in Ukraine as a justification uh, for people to all kind of rally around the flag and and come together to avoid having um, any sort of negative spillovers um, in Kazakhstan. Um, That said, I think there are still um, political vulnerabilities. 
Um, I talked already about the, the issue of ethnic Russians. Um, the number of ethnic Russians in the country has expanded since the war uh, began. A number of, of people um, have left Russia uh, fleeing conscription or uh, just out of opposition to the war. Uh, Kazakhstan has been one of the principal uh, destinations for those people. Um, the impact hasn't been as serious as it's been in, say, Georgia uh, uh, or Armenia, but nevertheless, um, there's there still uh, are issues there. Um, there are also uh, real regional disparities. A lot of the um, political unrest uh, in Kazakhstan has been centered in the western part of the country. Um, near the Caspian Sea, where uh, much of the energy industry is concentrated, uh, but where there's a lot less uh, wealth and development, um, living conditions are poor, salaries are lower, um, and there's just a sense that, um, you know, people are not, um, that th th their quality of life isn't, hasn't always been a priority for the, for the government, which is seeking to maximize um, revenues from the energy industry. So that regional um, volatility, uh, concerns about um, labor unrest, um, that kind of thing continues. So oil and gas, uh, clearly one of the big uh, elements of the, of the economy in Kazakhstan. Anything else uh, that we should know about as far as economic uh, power goes for, for Kazakhstan? Um, uranium. Uh, Kazakhstan is, is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, producer of, of uranium in the world. Um, and um, natural resources in general, um, transportation um, infrastructure is also really important. I mean, again, you know, you mentioned the, the size uh, of the country. If you sort of look at, at where it's located, it's really right at the, the center of the Eurasian landmass. And I think a lot of um, uh, transportation routes currently or prospectively um, that are working to sort of integrate this this larger Eurasian space um, are going uh, across Kazakhstan, and that includes railways, that includes pipelines, that includes highways, uh, electricity uh, transmission lines. Um, so all of those things, but the, the, the bulk of the economy remains connected to um, natural resources, oil, gas, uranium, um, and a few other things, minerals. Uh, what about, what about uh, Kazakhstan's relationships uh, with the neighboring nations uh, in Central Asia? Uh, maybe we can start with sort of the, a little bit more about the historical connection to Russia uh, and go from there. Um, I, I'd particularly like to hear your thoughts on Kazakhstan's relationship right now with, uh, with China and the, other, uh, the uh -huh. other Central Asian republics. Yeah, so China is um, a very important economic partner, um, has been for, for quite some time now. Um, China has um, displaced Russia as the, the main economic engine for Central Asia um, for the past decade or so. So as a, a source of investment, uh, trade, um, China is, is really the, the major player now. Um, the new uh, energy infrastructure that's being built uh, out of the region um, is mostly going east. Uh, so there's a Central Asia-China uh, gas pipeline. It's a series of now four um, pipelines that um, cross multiple countries uh, in the region and bring gas to, to western China. Um, there's also an oil pipeline uh, running from, from Central Asia to China. Um, and, and all of this sort of suggests that 
um, you know, the center of economic gravity uh, in the region is is shifting. Um, so far, uh, China and Russia have not uh, really had any major uh, conflicts or, or frictions over Central Asia. Um, they participate in a series of multilateral meetings through organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, that are designed to uh, provide a forum for, for regional cooperation. Um, and China has mostly stuck to the economic realm. Um, it's, it's seeking to uh, develop Central Asia as a, uh, a source of natural resources for its economy. Um with some exceptions, uh, has not sought to play a major um, political or security role in Central Asia. Now, that's beginning to change. Um, it's The change has happened most extensively um, in Tajikistan, where uh, you've had for several years now um, Chinese security forces deployed um, along sensitive border regions um, with Afghanistan. Um, and engaged in training and exercises and uh, selling weapons. So we're beginning to see the emergence of a, of a Chinese security presence. Um, but so far, um, it's not that extensive, especially outside of Tajikistan. Um, and China has, I think, uh, kind of consciously deferred to Russia's role uh, as the regional, as the main regional security actor. Um, I mentioned before the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO. Um, this is the, the umbrella uh, that Russia uses for um, multilateral uh, security. Um, in many cases, the CSTO has seemed to be less than the sum of its parts. <laughs> uh, if we go back to 2010, when there was uh, ethnic violence in Kyrgyzstan, um, the then um, interim president of Kyrgyzstan asked for CSTO help to put down the, the riots and, and, um, and restore order. Um, the CSTO balked, uh, didn't do anything. Um, and subsequently, there's a, a perception that the CSTO wasn't good for very much, that it was never going to kind of come together to uh, actually provide uh, concrete security assistance. Um, the, the violence in Kazakhstan in January 2022 was the first time that it actually did, that it overcame that uh, reluctance and, and where you had uh, especially Russian troops deploy outside of, of Russian territory on this kind of domestic security uh, mission. And not only that, they deployed, but then they withdrew. Um, there was concern at the time, of course, that you know when Russia deploys troops outside its borders, they're going to stay. Um, but in, in this case, uh, they left. Um, and I think that was seen as uh, an important milestone in terms of the development of the CSTO as a, as a more capable uh, organization, more willing to, to play this role. And as far as China goes, I think the, the view is that as long as these other mechanisms are in place for uh, sec regional security, um, China doesn't need to step in with a very heavy hand uh, to do that. China and Russia both um, have a kind of preference for authoritarian regimes, uh, are worried about uh, Islamism, radicalism, um, and uh, want to benefit economically uh, in, in the region. So I think the view in, in Beijing is that um, if the, the governments in Central Asia plus Russia 
can manage to maintain stability uh, and help uh, protect uh, Chinese economic equities, then there's not a reason uh, for Beijing to get involved in a really extensive way in, in the, the security or the politics uh, of these countries. If that comes under question, though, and I think this is, is one of the consequences of the war in Ukraine that, that bears watching, um, does that mean that China is going to be more uh, inclined or more interested um, in, in taking on a regional security role for itself if it feels that Russia, uh, either uh, bilaterally or, or through the CSTO, is no longer willing or able uh, to fulfill that role? That, that, that is comprehensive coverage of the, of the regional dynamics. Thank you for that. Uh, I do want to bring up three organizations, two of which you've mentioned uh, uh, some already. Uh, but first is the, the CIS, or Commonwealth of Independent States. Second would be the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Both of those groups were sort of originally organized by the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO, another significant grouping of nations. Uh, the SCO theoretically exists to address diplomatic, economic, and security cooperation across the entire Central and East Asian region. What role does Kazakhstan specifically play in these three organizations, uh -huh. and how relevant are those three groupings to Kazakhstan's geostrategic position in, in Central Asia? And I ask that because uh -huh. you brought up the fact that a as a huge country, it has a relatively small population, and population size matters as far as impact goes uh, in, in some of these, uh, these organizations that exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the CIS still exists. Um, it doesn't do a whole lot. It was kind of created as a um, as a the successor to the Soviet Union, um, but it never really found a, a role. It, it, its existence at this point is, is pretty vestigial. Um, I, I'll come back to this in a minute. But um, the CSTO, you know, we've, we've mostly talked about. Um, I think, you know, for Kazakhstan, the, the main significance of it is that when uh, there was this political unrest uh, in January of 2022, it turned to the CSTO for uh, assistance. And then the CSTO jumped in and, and uh, provided a, a relatively small number of troops. Um, but that small number uh, allowed Tokayev's government to show that it had the backing of the rest of the CSTO, but particularly of Russia. Um, and this carried some weight in, in terms of domestic politics. So, you know, if the people who were challenging Takayev's rule in early 2022 thought that they, you know, had a chance of, of unseating him or displacing him, the intervention of, of Russian troops, even in relatively small numbers, was kind of a signal to um, these these opposition movements and, and actors that um, Tokayev had had Moscow's backing um, and that uh, it would be uh, dangerous for them to, to try and escalate the, the efforts to, to oust him. Now, that said, um, the CSTO uh, was also called on to provide support for Armenia, right. uh, which is also a member during um, the recent conflict uh, with Azerbaijan, which is not a member. Um, and for a variety of reasons and on a variety of pretexts, uh, the CSTO didn't do that. Um, and Armenia uh, has uh, been seeking to distance itself from the organization. Uh, as a result, it's still a member, um, but it um, 
uh, canceled uh, joint military exercises that were scheduled to take place on its territory, uh, didn't participate in the in the most recent summit. So I think the the failure of the CSTO to uh, get involved in, in the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict has kind of reinforced the message, not just to Armenia, but to the other members, that um, at the end of the day, they can't really count on this organization, that it's uh, it, it remains uh, subject to substantial Russian influence, that it's going to act uh, in ways that uh, reinforce Russian geopolitical objectives, um, and that it's not so much, um, you know, uh, uh, an impartial organization that, that you can call on or that uh, you can rely on to protect your security, um, because uh, um, at, at the end of the day, it, it's going to be responsive to, to what Russia wants. So if the, the 2022 unrest in Kazakhstan was kind of a signal that, okay, the CSTO has become more of a serious organization and now has the capabilities and the willingness to deploy outside uh, its borders, the failure to, to protect or to do anything really um, in the Armenia-Azerbaijan war reinforced a lot of the doubts that had long existed about the organization and whether um, you, know, you could count on it. I think... Uh, again, for a country like Kazakhstan, which has uh, which has had a, a, a strategy of, of trying to avoid um, giving Russia any sort of pretext for um, considering it a threat, um, there's little uh, prospect that it'll leave the CSTO. But I think, in terms of thinking about um, how can how can the government um, secure its future, how can it define its interests? Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, willingness to, to see the CSTO as, as an important pillar or as a, uh, a bulwark for, uh, for security going forward. Um, as far as the SCO is concerned, um, the SCO is a, is a big, multifaceted organization uh, whose purpose is a little bit unclear. Um, <laughs> Russia and China are the, the main drivers of the organization, um, but now it also includes uh, India and Pakistan and Iran. And when you have that many countries with diverging interests, uh, it's a little hard to um, pin down exactly what the organization stands for or what it does. Um, I'll say this, though. Um, many of the countries that are involved uh, are authoritarian or at least um, not uh, ideologically averse to working with or supporting uh, authoritarian regimes. And they're all non-Western countries. So for a long time, um, the West, the liberal democratic West, has had an effective monopoly on um, international institutions. Uh, that the real international institutions that matter have all been designed by the West and they all have liberal democracy written into their DNA. Um, the SPO is, is one example uh, of a new kind of non-Western multilateralism. Um, and even if it's pretty diffuse and its purpose is a little bit uh, undefined, the fact that it's a forum where you've got the leaders of Russia, China, India, Pakistan, uh, the Central Asian countries, Iran, potentially Turkey down the road, um, joining 
um, is, is pretty significant just in terms of what those countries and those leaders represent. Um, whatever it is they can agree or not agree on. Um, and it suggests that the, um, the Russian analysts sometimes talk about the, the normative hegemony uh, of the West uh, doesn't necessarily apply anymore, and that there's a world beyond the West uh, that's emerging with its own rules, its own institutions, um, and its own uh, ideas. And that one of the key differences is that liberalism and democracy are not uh, as instrumental uh, for these non-Western uh, countries, even for a democratic country like India, um, as they are uh, for the West. And so I think to the extent that we're going to see the SCO uh, developing in new ways and similar organizations emerging, I think it's it, it represents a, a challenge to the model of, of international society uh, as designed by and implemented by the West. And then that's the main significance for it. Um, you know, for Kazakhstan, um, as a Eurasian state, as an authoritarian state, um, being a member of a group like the SCO uh, makes total sense. Um, I think the fact that uh, the SCO is not Russian-dominated, that you have the presence of China and India and others, uh, actually makes it a, a more comfortable venue for a country like Kazakhstan uh, because uh, it, it has more freedom of action, more freedom of maneuver um, than it would in a, in a purely uh, Russian-dominated uh, organization or one where Russia was playing a much more prominent role, like, say, the, the CSTO. Um, there's one other organization that you, you didn't mention that I think is probably worth bringing up, and that's the Eurasian Economic Union. Oh, yeah. Um, EEU or uh, EAEU. Um, this was actually something that the former Kazakh president, uh, Nursultan Nazarbayev, uh, proposed um, in the 1990s as kind of a, an enhanced customs union to preserve some of the uh, supply chains and economic relationships uh, that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union disrupted. Um, it didn't really go anywhere for a while. And then um, in the late 2000s, uh, the Russians started uh, taking up this idea. Um, Putin talked about it um, when he was uh, prime minister uh, between 2008 and, and 2012, and it was one of the key platforms uh, for his campaign to return to the presidency uh, in 2011-2012. He talked about building the Eurasian Economic Union as a, or he called it the Eurasian Union at the time, um, as a uh, pole in, a, in an increasingly multipolar world. Um, many of the other countries uh, that were slated for inclusion in the union balked at this uh, framing of it. Um, one of the countries that was key to, to Putin's vision was Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine, of course, um, was not interested, even under the comparatively pro-Russian leadership at the time of, of Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and it was Ukraine's attempt to sign a, a trade agreement with the European Union, rather than with this, this Russian-Eurasian Union that really sparked uh, the, the crisis in Ukraine that has now spread and uh, lasted for over a decade. Um, but Ukraine ends up not joining this uh, Eurasian Union uh, or Eurasian Economic Union, as it ultimately gets called. Uh, and so instead, uh, it becomes much more of a, a southern focused uh, entity 
so in addition to Russia, there's, again, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, um, and now uh, Kyrgyzstan. Um, and these countries um, all uh, have uh, now a common sort of external tariff barrier um, and have lowered uh, internal uh, trade barriers, tariffs, and others. So for Russia, uh, this was a way to help um, ensure that the, the smaller post-Soviet countries, especially in the Caucasus and Central Asia, remained uh, economically connected to Russia and limited their sort of reorientation or drift out of Russia's economic orbit. Um, you know, one example uh, in Kyrgyzstan, um, in the, the bazaars, uh, before the signing of the agreement to, to join the Eurasian Economic Union, most of the goods that you would find were uh, of Chinese origin. Mm. Um, it was cheap. You know, you had shuttle traders who would go across to China, you know, buy various kinds of, of consumer goods, bring them back, and then, you know, sell them in the bazaars um, in Kyrgyzstan. And the Eurasian Economic Union um, was designed in part to um, to make that harder, uh, to uh, reorient the trade patterns uh, of these countries so that they would trade more with one another and more specifically with Russia uh, and less with outside partners. And, and so we, we've definitely seen that. Um, and it also creates complications now because of the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Russia over the war in Ukraine. Um, there have been efforts, of course, to carve out um, the other uh Eurasian Economic Union members, apart from Belarus, which is a, an active participant in the war. Um, but because of their deep economic uh, ties to Russia, uh, that has been um, complicated. And one of the things that we've seen uh, just recently is um, a real uptick of um, uh, re-export of, of sanctioned goods to Russia through the other Eurasian Economic Union members. And that's particularly been an issue with Kyrgyzstan, mm. um, but I think we can see it uh, with all of, of these countries because it's easier for them to, to trade with Russia. And so there's been a, a spike in terms of, of goods from, say, Europe uh, being sold to these other Eurasian Economic Union member countries uh, and then re-exported uh, to Russia, uh, even though... Um, because of sanctions, Russia is not allowed to, to be purchasing them. And that's a, a source of tension between the European Union and, and uh, the Central Asian countries and, and between the U.S. and the Central Asian countries. Uh, so, uh, Professor Mankoff, uh, you, you brought up the U.S. I, I want to go ahead and shift gears now a little bit more on uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy aspects of this yeah. whole situation. Uh, when I had uh, Tamar Umarov and uh, Yar Batman-Gelage on the show, they both commented on the fact or the sense of uh, kind of a region, a movement of regional independence uh, across the five Central Asian republics, uh, away from sort of uh, you know genuflecting to Moscow, not wanting to get completely uh, swallowed up by Beijing, uh, but they also don't want to you know bow down to Washington D.C. And I've I've also read a lot, uh, to, you know, and, and listened to some things on like BBC Radio and some other places where. Uh, the younger generations across Central Asia, the Central Asian republics, they are seeking a greater connection to the rest of the world. And it's becoming much easier to do as Internet spreads across the region. Uh, so with all that said, and, and if you look at what's been happening uh, in the region, we've had uh, 
you know, Putin has been visiting the region. We've had uh, Pakistan, uh, Turkey, Iranian leaders all visiting Central Asia. We've had uh, French President Emmanuel Macron reaching out to the Central Asian Republics, Olaf Schultz, uh, our, our own uh, uh, Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, has been uh, visiting the region. Are, are the Central Asian nations looking to align more closely with the Western world or with China, or, or is it kind of both? Is this part of this, uh, this new non-aligned movement that's really been growing rapidly around the world where— uh, countries, uh, even India and Brazil, part of the BRICS, uh, they want to be, you know, democracies, but they're also partnering up with uh, strongly autocratic nations. Are, are we seeing these autocratic nations in Central Asia looking to connect more to the West for an economic uh, boost uh, while still maintaining control? And if so, how, how should President Biden, how should the United States play this, uh, this situation? Again, this is your personal opinion. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not speaking on behalf of the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah. I think it's less about wanting to align with the West and more about um, being independent and pursuing their own interests. Um, and that centers on uh, being able to uh, maintain a multiplicity of international engagements. Um, and you know, for a long time, this was a region that was seen and, and often treated as, as Russia's backyard. Um, I think, you know, you, as you described, there's a younger generation that's emerging uh, that is less uh, under the influence of, of Russian culture, um, that's much more uh, interested in speaking the local languages. Um, Kazakhs who um, emphasize speaking Kazakh, uh, you know, we even saw um, President Tokayev make a, a gesture in this direction where um, at a meeting um, with Putin recently, um, he began the, the he began his speech by uh, speaking in Kazakh for a while. Um, that was a, a very demonstrative uh, symbol that uh, you know Kazakhstan has its own identity that it doesn't see itself as being part of a, a Russian world. Um, that also doesn't mean that uh, it's you know, seeking alignment with the West. Um, again, given the geography and the, the neighborhood uh, in which a country like Kazakhstan is located, um, it can't afford uh, to be uh, a, a foe or a rival uh, of Russia or China. Um, and I think instead, uh, what the leadership in Astana and in the other Central Asian capitals uh, are trying to do is to, to give themselves as many options as, as possible. Um, you know, I, I think the idea of, of a non-aligned world is, is it's a little bit different than the classic era of the non-aligned movement um, during the Cold War, because I think that today these countries have a, a much more diverse um, set of interests, um, and we're not really in the, the kind of bipolar confrontation that, that the Cold War was. Um, but there is a, a significant uh, segment of the world um, that doesn't want to be uh, told that it has to make a choice um, and that wants to pursue its own uh, strategic and economic interests. And I think the Central Asian countries very much uh, fall into that. Uh, Kazakhstan uh, and Uzbekistan probably the most um, forthright uh, about wanting that kind of, of strategic independence. And so that means uh, a lot of things. It means... Um, seeking investment uh, from uh, other sources uh, to 
reduce their dependence not only on, on Russia, but also on China. Uh, it means signing uh, energy and, and uh, logistics transport partnerships uh, with countries like with countries in Europe, uh, which are very interested in expanding overland transit, uh, which could be very beneficial for, for Central Asia. Um, it means uh, working closer with Turkey, uh, which uh, sees uh, Central Asia in some ways as part of its own um, strategic space because of the, the cultural linkages. Um, you know, four out of the five uh, Central Asian countries speak Turkic languages, uh, and there are extensive um, cultural and, and economic ties. Um, there's been a, a, a foundation or a consolidation in the last couple of years of a new organization of Turkic states um, driven by Ankara, uh, in which the, the four Central Asian countries um, are, are participants. Um, and you know, I, I think all of these partnerships are designed to emphasize that the Central Asian states are uh, independent players, uh, that they're not part of anybody's backyard, that they have their own uh, interests, and that they can um, work with uh, whoever is, is willing to work with them. I think for the U.S., um, the challenge is always that Central Asia is far away. Uh, it's uh, relatively small in terms of uh, its uh, collective GDP, um, and the, the value of the bilateral economic relationship is comparatively limited. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, you know, the U.S. is always going to um, have to uh, figure out how to work with Central Asia at a time when it's not always going to be the top priority. Um, and we've seen uh, the Biden administration making a, an effort in this direction. You know, you mentioned Secretary Blinken traveling to the region. President Biden met with the five Central Asian leaders in New York uh, around the, the UN General Assembly earlier this year. Um, there's an effort underway to catalyze uh, private investment uh, uh, in infrastructure as a way of competing with the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Um, to the extent that that's successful, I think uh, there's going to be a push to get more um, American money and, and, and money from uh, allied countries uh, going into some of these infrastructure projects in the region, uh, which then can help create kind of common interests uh, around trade and development and, and investment. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think um, there's uh, an effort underway to, to be more invested in, and involved in Central Asia. In the past, uh, we've tended to prioritize the region uh, only for security reasons. Um, there was a big push into Central Asia after 9-11. Uh, when the U.S. had a, a military presence in, in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan um, during the, the military operations in Afghanistan. Um, that's now been withdrawn, and uh, I don't think it's coming back, and, and I don't think it should come back. Um, but the challenge then is how can the U.S. focus on the region, um, focus on uh, areas of, of common interest, uh, one, when um, there are other priorities, and two, um, when the kind of overriding security focus that's long been the driver of, of U.S. involvement in the region uh, is no longer as prominent as it was in the years after nine, as as it was in the years after nine eleven. So, so Jeff, as I'm listening to all the things you've been telling us today, I, I realize there's sort of a 
this interesting catch-22 situation with the Central Asian nations. Uh, obviously, China's Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt piece going through Central Asia, would be a great economic boost uh, to all of those countries. Uh, the fact that European nations and the United States want to reach out to the region and help it develop economically. You know, you were just talking about some of those uh, those economic uh, uh, ties that are being explored. Uh, if that if the belt uh, belt part of the Belt and Road Initiative were successful, <laughs> it would actually make it easier for Europe to connect up to, to Central Asia and have those uh, benefits from foreign direct investment into the region uh, subsequently benefit the economies in, in, <laughs> in, in Europe and even the United States, frankly, over the long term. But for the United States, I mean, we champion uh, the rule of law, uh, democracy, uh, civil rights, things like this. But we're talking about, you know, five countries in Central Asia uh, that don't really pay heavy attention to those, uh, those things that we champion uh, around the globe. So there's this sort of collision of, uh, I guess— uh, uh, philosophies about governance and uh, and economics, uh, and I, I'm I'm under the impression that a lot of the political leadership in those five countries in Central Asia uh, personally benefit from economic development. They don't necessarily share the wealth uh, with all of the people in the region. Is I mean, any any thoughts on on those <laughs> on me sort of uh, waxing poetical here? <laughs> yeah, the. So the Belt and Road does kind of create a, a dilemma because economic development is very much needed. Uh, investment in infrastructure in, in Central Asia and other parts of the world is very much needed. And we never get a lot of mileage going to these countries and telling them, China's offering you billions of dollars and much needed investment. Don't take it. Right. Uh, so I, I don't think that's the, the right strategy, but I think that, um, you know, one, um, pushing uh, both the government in Beijing and the governments in Central Asia to um, promote uh, high standards around transparency and, and rule of law and environmental justice uh, around these infrastructure projects uh, is important. And I think, you know, to the extent that the Belt and Road catalyzes the U.S. government and the U.S. private sector and, and the governments and private sectors in allied countries to step up their own game uh, to, to focus on um, investment in the region and, and in critical infrastructure. That's no bad thing either. Um, and again, you know, we've seen the Biden administration um, talk about this. You know, we don't have uh, the massive reserves of capital um, that the state can just, you know, direct to be invested the way that, that China can. So it's going to be much more uh, of a private sector-led initiative. And in order to do that, the private sector is going to need, um, it, it's going to need guarantees uh, around the security of its investments and property rights and the ability to generate a return and to repatriate capital and to do all of these things. And I think that these are areas where, the U.S. can work with the Central Asian governments um, to, you know, implement the kinds of reforms um, that would allow and would encourage uh, private sector investment from the U.S., from Europe, from uh, Japan, from Korea, India, wherever else, um, to flow into the region as well, so that we're not only talking about Chinese investment, but that so, uh, you know, China is, is one player among many. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so, Jeff, I know you have you have a hard stop at uh, at eleven o'clock your time out on the East Coast in Washington D.C. Uh, I, I want to ask us a, a few more quick questions. Uh, any resources you'd like to point our listeners to so they can learn more about Central Asia? Any really good articles or books uh, that you might recommend? Oh gosh! Um, so the the best kind of comprehensive history of the region um, is written by um, a professor out in California named Adib Khalid, uh, K H A L I D. Um, it's a it's a doorstop of a book, um, <laughs> but I think that's a a really good place to go for. Uh, you know, kind of reference to the to the history of the region. Um, in terms of uh, you know, contemporary coverage, uh, I really like uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, and uh, The Diplomat, uh, which uh, both you know do a pretty good job, um, you know, covering the region. You, you mentioned you had um, Timur Murov on there uh, recently. You know, he's great. Uh, he's at the Carnegie Endowment, and and. Uh, is I think one of the the best observers of the region uh, here in in Washington, um, and then actually I guess he's not based in Washington. Um, and then let's see, I'm trying to think what else. There's a Central Asia program uh, at George Washington University at the Institute for Eurasian, Russian, and European Studies. Um, uh, so if uh, listeners are interested. Uh, in some of the more academic analyses, they do a lot of events that um, are live streamed. People can watch. Uh, those are all good places to go. Are you personally working on any new publications, whether it be a book or, or uh, articles, peer-reviewed articles, which might be forthcoming sometime soon that we can read? Um, yeah, I, I don't have anything on Central Asia coming out uh, anytime soon, um, but doing some stuff on uh, kind of Russia rethinking its role in the world as a result of the war in Ukraine and, and ideas for uh, reshaping world order, which definitely has implications for Central Asia and, and Russia's view of where Central Asia should go. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. I, I always like to give my guests the the final word. I've taken it a little bit out of order normally here, but uh, two minutes. Last thoughts on Central Asia, things you want people to know about before we sign off. Um, yeah, that it's a region that I think we in the West and in the U.S. in particular haven't spent as much time focusing on uh, as perhaps we should, um, and that now is a, a really good time to begin doing that because the region is opening up. Um, the importance of the region is, is increasing as as we enter into a period of uh, what. The U.S. government describes a strategic competition uh, with Russia and China. Um, and as you have this younger generation of people in Central Asia um, that is more uh, has more access to the outside world, uh, more of them speak English, more of them have studied abroad or traveled abroad. And I think there's a, a real interest and, and willingness um, among that younger generation in, in having deeper connections uh, and in, in being more involved in this kind of global community. And so I think the, the opportunities are there, and I would just encourage people to, to, um, to seize on them in whatever way they can, whether that's you know, through travel or, or business or you know, just learning about the region. Sounds like public diplomacy has a great opportunity uh, across Central Asia right now. Uh, Professor Jeff Mankoff from the National Defense University, thank you so much for joining us this morning on National Security This Week. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.